This is a HeadGum Podcast. This is why, this is why. Pop culture, politics, friendship, dating, work, parenting, news. This is why the podcast. Welcome to the This Is Why podcast. I'm journalist, author, and comedy writer, Laura Lane. And I'm author and editor, Angela Sparrow. We are the co-writers of the book, This Is Why You're Single. Every week we give best friend advice on topics including pop culture, news, friendship, dating, workplace dynamics, parenting, and whatever else is on your mind. This week's episode is called Everything You Want to Ask an OB About Pregnancy. We will be answering your listener questions, including fertility preparation tips and getting pregnant over 40. Then we're talking about what's in the news. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's pregnancy shines light on pregnancy after miscarriage and why a new study is saying that evictions are linked to adverse birth outcomes. But first, we want to welcome this week's guest. Dr. Nathan Fox is an OB and high-risk specialist at Maternal Fetal Medicine Associates, and he somehow finds time in between patients to host not one, but two podcasts. He hosts the Healthful Women podcast, which gives accurate, reliable, and helpful information about all areas of women's health. I have been binging it my entire pregnancy, and he hosts the new podcast, High-Risk Birth Stories, that is about high-risk birth stories. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This is amazing. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast because I feel like you've been in my ear for the last like eight months. Uh, I've just gotten so much information out of your your podcast. And I think I saw you a couple times my first pregnancy. Um, yes. Definitely for my, my post-op where I was a hot mess to say the least. Um, <laughs> but uh, t- okay. tell us a little bit about your career journey and how you decided to specialize in high-risk pregnancies and how you ended up where you are. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, so I'm really excited to be on. Uh, as you said, I am an OBGYN, so I went to medical school and at the time deciding what to go into. And I really fell in love with um, OBGYN, with women's health, and just the whole concept of pregnancy and delivery. And I decided to do residency in OBGYN and then ultimately, I did a subspecialty in what we call maternal fetal medicine, which is colloquially called high-risk obstetrics, where basically I focus on pregnancies specifically uh, and high-risk pregnancies in particular. And, you know, it's just been awesome. It's, it's a lot of fun to take care of um, women during their pregnancies, uh, before, during, and after. I get to know them very well. I get to know their families you know, their, their husbands, their partners, their parents, obviously their children now. And it's just been an amazing um, journey for me. And uh, just recently, as you said, I started the podcast, which have been a lot of fun. And uh, it's great. And we're just loving the pandemic. Good times. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't imagine. It's scary enough just having to worry about yourself during uh the last year being pregnant during this and giving birth sounds just like an insane experience. And I'm sure people are leaning on you very heavily, um, which is probably a lot of, feels like a lot of responsibility. It, I'll tell you, it's, it's really crazy. I mean, so we're recording now in March and of 2021. And so literally exactly a year ago, you know, the world exploded as everybody knows. But one of the crazy things is number one, we couldn't shut down because obviously we have all these women who are pregnant and ready to deliver and need to come in for their care. And so, yeah, we, we sort of toned back our gynecology practice for routine visits and people didn't want to come in, but 
we had our patients, you know, the women are still coming to their visits. Our office is still filled every day. We did some restrictions on who's coming and how often, and we're wearing all the protective gear. And I would say there was a fair level of fear, but, you know, people have had children through war, through famine, through natural disasters. And I have to say the resilience of the women who came to our practice was simply inspirational. Uh, Many of whom had to deliver without even a partner in the room, which is crazy. We actually, uh, the podcast we're dropping this week is a story, a birth story about a, you know, woman who was told the day before she delivered, sorry, you're doing this alone because of hospital policy. Uh, But ultimately, it was really just an inspiration to see our patients and obviously the people I work with coming to work every day, putting themselves on the line at risk uh, to help these women. It was it was uh, definitely renewed my belief in in humanity. Yeah, it's I had a friend that gave birth with her husband on FaceTime. (laughs) I'm like, so he was just looking, looking at your face in pain, feeling like kind of helpless. But um yeah, it's just such yeah. such a wild year. Yeah, I know the policy yeah. at maternal fetal medicine cha- first. I think partners could come and then they couldn't. Um, I I didn't mind that not having Nick there. I think it would have been <laughs> hard. No, I mean I think it would have been hard. It was my you know this is my second pregnancy. So if he couldn't have been there, he came to literally every single appointment, and I was coming every two weeks. You know for my for my first pregnancy, and. I really needed the support because I was like, I don't know if this baby's going to make it all the way. I don't know if he's going to come out before he's ready. I just wanted to have him there. I have felt a little more confident, like, okay, I know what's going to happen at the appointments now. And I, okay, just going on my own. So he's only come to like two appointments for this pregnancy. Um, but yeah, it's been an interesting time to be, be pregnant. And um, I'm sure, I'm sure even, you know, regardless of COVID at your, office, you see such a wide variety of cases. What is a typical day like for you? Who's coming into your office? What kind of cases are you seeing? Yeah, so it's a great question. Uh, So maternal fetal medicine specialists, you know what I do, not all of us do exactly the same thing. And one of the big dividing lines is uh, in the US, probably the majority of us don't still do deliveries. Um, I do. I still do deliveries. So, you know, I was on the labor floor yesterday doing a delivery, for example. So some of my time, if if I'm on the labor floor, then that day or that night or that weekend, I'm on the labor floor, again, doing deliveries, taking care of people in labor, cesareans, you know, postpartum care, whatever it is. In the office, uh, I probably split my time about 50-50. Half of the time, I'm either seeing patients uh, in an office setting for consultations or prenatal care visits um, and then the other half, generally, I'm in uh, one of our ultrasound units doing ultrasounds, uh, fetal ultrasounds primarily. So pregnant women come in, we look at the babies, uh, as well as sometimes invasive procedures. And we have such a wide range. I mean, ranging from women who have no risk whatsoever, you know, the lowest risk, young, healthy, first pregnancy who come to us. And on the other end, we could have someone who's, you know, 54 with diabetes, lupus, a history, breast cancer is now pregnant with triplets and everything and and, and everything in between. And it's it really makes for an interesting day. Um, I I was just telling my wife recently how, you know, even though 
work is hard and that's fine. And COVID has been crazy and whatever. It, it sort of is what it is. Um, I just love coming to work every day because it's so much fun. I mean, we, I'm always interested. I like the people I work with. The patients are great. It's always new. Every day I'm seeing something new and trying to figure something out. And it's, uh, it's just interesting. It's a really, I'm blessed. I have a really, uh, I have a good job. I'm very fortunate. Yeah. It has to be mentally stimulating. Why do people who are not high risk come to see high risk specialists? Yeah. I mean, many don't. It really depends on the practice. Again, if you're a high risk practice that does not deliver babies, you're really only seeing people in consultation. And so you're not going to see any low-risk women for prenatal care. They're going to come to you because they need a consultation because they're high risk, or they're coming you to ultrasounds. And then some low-risk women, obviously, they need ultrasounds as well. But since we do deliveries, you know, some, we don't turn people away. Like we don't say, oh, you can't come to us because you're not complicated enough. So yeah. some women come to us just because it's convenient because we're near them. Some of them come to us because they heard good things or some yeah. come to us because let's say their last pregnancy was complicated. Like let's say they had twins and they came to us, but then we have a relationship with them. So the next pregnancy, they have one baby, they'll come or a family member. And so, and other people also view risk differently. Some women, you know, who are, let's say 38 and healthy and nothing going on, they'll say, well, I'm over 35, so I'm high risk. So I want to see a high risk doctor and other women don't view it that way. And so uh, we don't, we try not to sort of, you know, grade people's risk. We just, we, we, we take all comers. So on top of your very busy day to day, you also have time to host two podcasts. You recently yeah. launched a second <laughs> one, just focused on high risk birth stories, which is super yeah. interesting. What made you decide to do that? So the reason we, I started the podcast almost exactly a year ago. And what happened was, you know, part of the training for subspecialty for maternal fetal medicine involves research, like, you know, medical scientific research. And I spent uh, the first 10 to 15 years of my practice, of my career, doing a lot of research on the side of practicing um, medicine, which I love. And I enjoyed it, worked with students and residents and fellows, published, it was great. But I realized that even though it was really interesting for me, the, the information was not getting to the people who I care about, which are you know, pregnant women to the, you know, to that group. And, you know, for example, I could spend a year doing a research project and publish on it and be very proud of that accomplishment. But ultimately, I'm lucky if maybe like 100 doctors read it. And so I didn't feel like the reach was there. And as I'm, I wouldn't call myself old, but as I'm getting older, I started to think about, you know, impact. And I thought that there really is this lack of reliable information for pregnant women or for women's health in general. It's true for all health, but obviously I focus on women's health. You know, if someone has an issue or a question, you go to Google and you search it and you find 6 million options and you, it ranges from you're going to be perfectly fine to you're going to die tomorrow. And it's so hard to, to sift through it and figure out what's real, what's fake, what applies to me, what doesn't, and everybody's confused. And so I, I've always found that one of my strengths is talking to people trying to explain things to people, make things that are complicated into something that's a little more easy to digest. And I thought, hey, like, let's do a podcast. And so I invite people on and we do two a week and we just talk about topics that are related to women's health, wellness, pregnancy, uh, in a way that we think is interesting, digestible, sometimes funny if people like my jokes, not funny if they don't like my <laughs> jokes. Um, 
And yeah, just something that's real practical, like practical information, because the space beforehand was either people who weren't doctors interviewing doctors, which is fine. It's well run and they're entertaining, but they don't really know the, the questions to ask or doctors with doctors, which are horrifically boring. <laughs> and so and so we tried to sort of mix the two uh, and it's been great. The response is good. And then the second podcast is over the course of doing this, I realized that you know, presenting the topics is just one side of this, of the, of the, um, of the story, so to speak. And the other side is what is the woman's experience going through either a pregnancy or fertility or a birth at one of these things. And that part is it's nowhere. You know, every woman has a story to tell about her fertility, about her pregnancy, about her delivery, about postpartum, about her family, that, that journey, it's, they're so fascinating and we learn so much and there's really no opportunity for them to do it. And so we started the second podcast where basically I just interview, uh, it doesn't have to be women, obviously it could be men as well, um, who have children and talk about their stories. And it's just been unbelievable. I'm like floored every time I, I hear these stories. And I think it's going to be a real big hit because these are A, very interesting, and B, I mean, so awe-inspiring when you hear these these tales that just everybody has. What's been your favorite episode that you've recorded so far? Or the best story that you've heard? Oh my God, I, I it's so hard to choose. They're all so good. Um, I just interviewed. Um, I just interviewed a woman. It hasn't dropped yet. We haven't edited it yet. Um, who I know who got diagnosed with breast cancer during her pregnancy. Wow. And yeah, and hearing her talk about, you know, her pregnancy and the breast cancer and and sort of how she was. Um, treated by her surgeons and the oncologists and sort of how they viewed pregnancy versus her. And just, it puts so much, you know, humanity and feeling and emotion into this scientific dilemma. And you would never get that if you read an article about breast cancer. You know, you would hear me saying facts and figures and statistics and management and what do we do and blah, blah, blah. And it's interesting and it's fine. But to hear her, her story of it, um, it's just amazing. It's unbelievable. And, you know, and I know her, I, I took care of her. Like I, I knew this story from the facts, but I never really got to sit down with her for 90 minutes and talk about it. And I, I was just floored how unbelievable she is and the strength that she has and what she has to teach all of us. And so that, that was pretty cool. I'm yeah. so glad that you're doing this podcast. I know when I was diagnosed with having a unicornuate uterus and I started mm -hmm. Googling, like I couldn't really find very many. I mean, there definitely wasn't a high risk right. birth story. I have a podcast. magical uterus. Yeah. I have a it's magical, a unicorn. what is going on? Uh, I mean, I looked at message boards and there were various stories. There were, you know, some stories with success and then there were some really horrific stories filled with trauma and sadness of women delivering babies at five months and, you know, too early to survive. And, women going, you know, trying for seven years to have babies and mul multiple miscarriages, but never like a full length, you know, story. And it's just made me kind of like crave to hear, you know, more experiences in depth to kind of help me on my journey. And then, uh, when I wrote like recently a long, a long piece about it, it was just amazing. The, the response you get when you do share your story in an authentic way. I, one of my neighbors that I lived next to for six years, I knew she had used a surrogate for her 
two daughters. I didn't know why. I didn't feel like it was my place to ask. She didn't, you know, share the information. But after I wrote the piece, she reached out to me last week and said, I have the same thing that you have. And that's why I used a surrogate. I was crying while I read your piece. Can we please talk about it? And like, I was like, wow, I've, I lived next door to you, like within, you know, our brick wall, like a foot between us and, you know, saw your children. You know, I remember when you told me you were going to like, go get them. And I saw you raise them and I never knew really why. And it wasn't my place to ask, but just seeing that I was like, wow, there women do really want to connect with other women who have either gone through what they've been through or gone through something similar, or even if they, it's not the exact same situation. I think just seeing somebody come out on the other side and like, know that they're okay is, is helpful. So I'm, I'm really, really grateful that you're, you're doing this podcast. Yeah. It's so interesting that you mentioned that. Um, first of all, we, before we had the birth stories podcast for the healthful woman podcast, I actually did interview a couple who used a surrogate, a gestational carrier for their third child. So I interviewed the, the father and the mother about this. And then I actually interviewed the carrier herself. Oh, cool. Uh, and to get all, and so that was like, and so things like that, it wasn't really medical in a sense. It was more of a story, and it, and it sparked exactly what you said, that so many people respond to it. And one of the themes that's been coming up uh, on this, when I've been recording these uh, birth stories, the ones formally for the podcast and the ones we sort of did in The Healthful Woman, is the women who tell their stories, it's really two reasons. Number one, it's very therapeutic to tell your own story. It really is. To be able, I mean, because again, women aren't given that opportunity to give their voice on it frequently. And historically, I mean, over the history of, you know, humankind, they were never able to talk about their births. It was always this hidden secret that maybe they shared with a friend or something. And so this is a, an opportunity for them to sort of, you know, hear my story, which is very therapeutic. But just like you said, each of them said, I mean, every single person said, I wish I'd heard this because I felt so alone. Yeah. When this happened to me, and these aren't always bad outcomes. It's not just like, you know, disaster pregnancy. It's pregnancy can be a a wonderful outcome, but still be a very um, impressive uh, experience, meaning it impresses on the the woman. And just to feel like I'm not alone, this happens to other women. It's this bond that we have. And all of them felt that and all of them um, the response that I've gotten to them has been exactly that, like, oh my God, what a connection I have. And I'm not alone uh, from hearing her tell her story. So it's been great. Yeah, I really I really resonate with that and, and can relate to it. Both, um, I found it therapeutic to, to write about it and talk about it. I don't know, maybe having a podcast and approaching 300 episodes, it's just like, I use our podcast for therapy, maybe a little, yeah. a little like to... <laughs> Yeah, a little TMI on on the show, but it's also removed a lot of my filters having a podcast. But <laughs> but uh, I think I think just like all the people that reach out to Angela and I about, we feel like it's like this unique thing that only happened to us and that like nobody else will relate to. And then we'll get a flood of emails of people saying like, thank you for talking about that. Thank you for like, it helped me, you know, with my grief of like a loved one or getting over a breakup or whatever, however small or big it is. Um, it's made me want to talk more and connect more with people and makes me feel less alone. Uh, and I, I don't know, at least from what people have, have emailed us makes, makes them feel less alone too. So it really is. Yeah. I think that's how we connect as humans is through stories. So, yeah, I mean, I, I interviewed a woman who's, uh, she's her career. She's an influencer 
on Instagram and she has 200,000 followers, right? I mean, an insane amount of people are following her. And she started talking about her own pregnancy losses. And she said, just flooded. And now they had to start a second group that has, I think, 20 or 30,000 women in it. Basically, it's, it's like a worldwide support group of tens of thousands of women talking about their pregnancy losses. Yeah. And that's something, you know, A, it's just phenomenal. And B, it's just, one of the ways that, you know, whether it's podcasts or social media that can connect people who would otherwise not be connected, right? And it, it sort of it brings us back that maybe social media is not killing us all slowly, right? Maybe there is some value to all of this crap that we have on our phones and this or that, that it can connect people who would otherwise never be connected and let them share those experiences in a really meaningful way. Yeah. Sometimes yeah, that makes, no. <laughs> it makes me, yeah, sometimes no. <laughs> it does. It makes me think of like the, remember when Chrissy Teigen had yeah, her yeah, yeah. miscarriage and people were very quick to criticize how she chose to share that story. But a lot of people did say it made them feel less alone, made them feel seen. Yeah. I hate, I hate the idea of like criticizing any woman with how they decide to process grief. I mean, she lost right. her pregnancy, I think halfway through and yeah, some, I think especially miscarriage is so taboo that like there is no correct way to grieve we've learned and that some women like to they don't want to tell anyone they're pregnant until they're 20 weeks long some people want to tell them people four weeks long and I really hate the idea of telling women to wait because I do think it stigmatizes miscarriage and then especially when it comes to grieving if you want to post about it post about it like I I if you want to keep it close to just you and your partner or just yourself and your family like Everybody grieves differently, and we've de- certainly learned that this year. With yeah, yeah, um, and it's not like it's not like these people are coming and knocking on your door and barging into their house and making you listen to their story, right? You I can mean, choose. if you don't like it, yeah, if you don't like it, you know, swipe whatever, you go to the next story. Like, you, no one has to listen to these things if they're if they're not interested or they think to so to get upset how someone chooses to tell their story is just ridiculous. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's crazy. Um, so I've never been pregnant, but I imagine if I was, me I'd neither. Have a million questions. We have that in common. Um, I would you and me both. Probably, Someone once asked me what contractions feel like. I was like, seriously. I mean, <laughs> oddly, you probably have a better idea than I do. Though well, <laughs> I, would I don't think. know. I'm not uh, sure. <laughs> but uh, I would, I would have a million questions for you. I'm curious. What are what are like the FAQs when a person walks in <laughs> to you? Like, what for, are the for, top for, questions you hear for pregnancy? Yes. Uh, and and as funny that, and as a pregnant person, I want to know what do you roll your eyes at, or do you? You know, I I don't I really don't roll my eyes. It's not it's not my mo. I, I think that you know people who come into pregnancy are they're curious and they're worried and they're fearful and they've read things and they heard things. I think that you know it, it's so funny that you mentioned that because one of the things when I was in the research phase that sort of like transitioned me to this podcast, I actually wrote an article about it's called the do's and don'ts of pregnancy. And it's basically like, here are the things that we always get asked. Here's the answers, you know, things like travel, sex, you know, nutrition, uh, alcohol, sushi, uh, exercise, and all of these things, what position should I sleep in? You know, all of these questions that people ask. And so that comes up a lot. Some of it has gotten, um, those questions have basically been diminished a little bit because people do read that uh, either after or in advance. And so some of the questions, um, we sort of get to the next level. Uh, I think a lot of people are really, um, I think everyone's really just 
focused primarily on their baby, which is interesting. A lot of, you know, pregnancy used to be, let's say, 150 years ago. You know, I, God, I hope the mother gets through this well. I mean, women die. And this is how it is in other parts of the world, unfortunately, um, where we feel fortunate that the woman gets through labor and delivery alive and in one piece. And but nowadays, I think it's such a, a luxury in developed countries that the assumption is I'm going to be fine when I'm pregnant. I'm going to be perfectly OK. I'm going to get through this. You know, maybe I'll have a scar from a cesarean. Maybe I won't. And that's really it. And they're really focused on the baby, the baby, the baby. And that's, um, I think, again, it's a luxury of how far we've come in prenatal care and pregnancy and overall health in the past hundred years. I remember Dr. And so there's a lot of talk about the baby. Oh, sorry. I, I remember Dr. Barber kind of saying something similar. Like I was really upset when my baby was breached and I'd have to have a C-section. And I was like, you know, like I pictured having some water birth with my, you know, midwife. Mm-hmm. And he was like, he said something like, look, like I've volunteered. I don't know if it was doctors without borders, but something like that. Like uh-huh. I've volunteered and saving, saving mothers, saving mothers. Yeah. I've volunteered yeah. in other countries where it's quote unquote, you know, natural birth. And like, it's not pretty. And like modern medicine is, uh, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but like, just trust me. Like, you know, it's like, I, I, the way he phrased it was like, you know, just modern medicine, like, like it's not pretty to have like a, yeah. like a typical natural birth the way it is in <laughs> the other countries where we don't have the things that we have here. And I don't know, I'm not, I'm not like, I'm not doing his words justice, but it like was really eye opening for me to just be like, you know what? I'm just going to shut up and have my C-section and like yeah. no, come I, out alive, yeah, I, you know? <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's moderation, obviously we could overdo it and recommend cesarean too much and do it on women who don't need it and do it unnecessarily. And that's not good, obviously. But on the other side, if you don't do enough cesareans, and that's actually been shown in worldwide data, countries whose cesarean rate is below a certain number actually have far worse outcomes um, for mothers and babies. Meaning there is a right balance between, you know, not between not doing too many, but obviously not doing enough. And if, you know, when, when people say things like, oh, women have been doing this for thousands of years without you doctors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, all right, fine. So maybe we are a little annoying at certain times and maybe we're a little too crazy about certain things. But, you know, women used to die. I mean, again, they, they still do. Die. They would die yeah. and, their, and their babies wouldn't survive. And so, you know, if done for the appropriate reasons, a cesarean could save the life of the mother and the baby, you know, one or both. If it's done for an inappropriate reason, then yeah, then it's probably an inappropriate operation. But it, that's why you need people to sort of know what they're doing when they take care of you and are going to recommend it when it's indicated and not recommend it when it's not. Since we're on the topic of cesarean, one thing that I learned from your podcast is how misleading asking a doctor what their cesarean rate is, because really yeah. kind of what you should be asking is like, what is your cesarean rate on like a someone that I forget how you would phrase it, but on a yeah. perfectly healthy, like, yeah. like, like if you're like, what is the cesarean rate? And you are a high risk specialist that has a lot of breech babies that has a lot of twins, like it's going to be higher. And that's not really an accurate rating. I don't know. Can you kind of ex- expand on that? Because that is something I hear a lot of like, you know, chatter about, I guess. Yeah. I mean, this started, they, they started comparing cesarean rates across hospitals um, at first and the assumption was, you know, if this hospital has a higher cesarean rate, they're somehow a worse hospital or they're not taking good care of women. And that might be true. I mean, obviously, it's not it's not proven not to be true, but it's that there's a couple problems with that is that 
based on who walks in the door, that's going to influence your C-section rate. So for example, if, if I happen to either have a, a, an obstetrical practice or I run a hospital and the women who come through my door are mostly women in their 20s having their second, third, and fourth baby, my C-section rate's going to be like 3%, right? Because they all deliver vaginally. But if, if I'm running a hospital or have a practice where I have women in their 40s who have IVF and are having a lot of twins, then my C-section rate's going to be over 50%. It's going to be well higher than that. And that doesn't mean it's a worse place. It's probably a better place because that's where the high-risk people are going. And so to try to really compare apples to apples, the first thing that was done, and this was nationally, is to instead of saying overall C-section rate, they said, okay, what's your C-section rate for a woman having her first baby at full term with the head is down, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the normal term spontaneous, uh, singleton vaginal delivery, I mean, one baby, not two. And so that's a C-section rate, at least that you can sort of compare apples to apples. So we're talking about one baby at term, head down, first baby. Right. And that's the first level of doing it. But the second level is there's other risk factors, meaning as women get older, the C-section rate is higher. Women who are heavier, the C-section rate is higher. Women with medical problems or do IVF, the C-section rate is higher. And so ultimately, it's it's pretty hard to get a really good answer for is this doctor that I'm seeing or about to see someone who is going to do a C-section unnecessarily or more often than somebody else? And I have found that the the best way to try to figure that out is not so much with statistics, like tell me your numbers. It's to really get a sense of who he or she is, like talk to them. Are they people who seem like they worry too much? Are they super duper anxious? Are they people who don't don't allow for any risk or don't allow for any shared decision-making, you know, to ask you, what's your opinion? What do you think about this? And I think if you find a doctor who it seems like, you know, he or she listens to me, he or she seems reasonable, he or she seems bright, he or she seems experienced, and I have a good relationship and I trust this person, then if you need a cesarean, it's the right decision. Whereas if you find someone who is like, this person is like scam artist. There, there's something sleazy. There's something off. There's something that doesn't click with me. He or she's not listening to me. I don't trust this person. Get out. Find somebody else. Like that's a bad situation to be in um, as a patient. Absolutely. Um, all right, we're gonna ask you a lot more questions later on in the podcast. But before mm -hmm. we move on, you did bring up sushi, which is something a <laughs> oh. lot of women talk about. And yeah. you are known as the doctor that lets women eat sushi. So can you... That's it. I, I didn't should, know that I was your rep. That. That, I should have said that. I didn't in, know that. Yeah. I should have said that in the intro. So um, what is the deal on sushi? Yeah, I was saying that it's, it's when I'm talking to them about what they can and can't do. And when I tell them they can eat sushi... The first thing that they always say is, you mean raw fish? And I'm like, well, yeah, like that's what sushi is. And then the the shock and awe that they have, it's literally, it would be, it would be less shock if I told them that they could like have crack when they're pregnant. <laughs> it, it's, they're just, they're floored. Like, I don't believe it. I, how could that be? It's, it's sushi. And so, you know, sushi was, people didn't know what the hell it was in America, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And I grew up, I mean, I never heard of sushi until I was in my, I don't know, teens, 20s, whatever it was. And so when it first got asked, probably the doctor was like, raw fish, that can't be good for you. Forget it. Don't have that when you're pregnant. And the thought, and there wasn't a particular reason. It, it was a food poisoning issue. It's not like, you know, there, there is an issue with mercury in fish in pregnancy, but that's not related to whether it's cooked or not. That's related to which kinds you eat, meaning shark has a lot of mercury, whether it's raw or cooked. 
tuna has not a lot, but has some mercury, whether it's raw or cooked, but like salmon doesn't, whitefish doesn't. And so if you're going to tell someone they should avoid sushi because of food poisoning reasons, fine. But like, what does pregnancy have to do with that? Like, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to eat somewhere that has bad sushi that's going to get me sick, whether I'm pregnant or not. And so I tell women, you know, with the kinds of fish you eat, you know, in terms of what has mercury, what doesn't, fine. But if it's raw cooked, just make sure you go to a good place that's clean and refrigerates it and whatnot. If you happened to get food poisoning, it, it, it sucks, but it's not specifically dangerous to pregnancy. Uh, but I wouldn't want to get food poisoning if I weren't pregnant too. And so sushi's fine. And the amazing thing is how actual counterproductive that recommendation is because fish is so good for you. It's so healthy for you and for the baby. And so women, for many, that's the only way they get fish in their diet. And so they stop eating fish when they're pregnant. And it's it's counterproductive probably. So yeah, I'm the guy who lets you eat sushi. It's uh, come to my practice and you can eat sushi. <laughs> Unless it's like gas station sushi, then that's where you draw the line. Right. Gas station sushi, I would avoid whether you're uh, pregnant, not pregnant, male, female, yeah. or otherwise. Unless, listen, I don't know. I mean, I'm told in the South that gas station barbecue is like awesome. So maybe really? maybe there's places, maybe in Japan, gas station sushi is fantastic. I have no idea. Yeah, that's um, Nick, Nick has really like yeah. schooled me on where I can get sushi or not. Because we'd be at the airport and I'd be like, let's get sushi. Right. And he's like, no airport fish. You <laughs> don't get fish at an airport. And I was like, that, was, that for some reason like blew my mind. I was like, oh, I have to think about this. Um, but yeah, it is, right. it is fascinating. Like the recommendations around the world, from what I understand in Europe, they kind of like steer women away from salads because listeria in, in a lot of recalls. I don't know. It's right. It's, it is. It's so, uh, yes. Yeah, some, some of that's regional. Like in France, there is a higher incidence of toxoplasmosis and a lot of women or a lot of people there eat sort of undercooked meat. And again, there there are some regional differences. Uh, but again, in terms of the fish being cooked or raw, it's really, is it is it a fish that does not have a lot of mercury? And are you going to get salmonella from it? The answer is not a lot of mercury, no salmonella. It should be good to go. Great. All right. We're going to be asking a lot more questions later on. Uh, but first, let's take a quick sponsor break, and then we're going to jump into the mailbox. People call it a guilty pleasure. But what if I told you that reality TV is a time capsule of our culture? Queer Eyes' Bobby Burke, The Circle's Chris Sapphire, and 90 Day Bay's Nicole Byer help me dissect our sometimes problematic faves. Shows like The Bachelor, The Real World, and Survivor. From Neon Hum Media, Spectacle, an unscripted history of reality TV. Hosted by me, Mariah Smith. Subscribe now. All right, Angela, what's in the mailbox this week for Dr. Fox to help us answer? Well, we let our listeners know on Instagram that you were going to be coming on the show. So we got some questions specifically for you. Um, first up, we have an anonymous question and she writes, Ooh. yeah, what prep stuff should I be doing and how soon should I start before trying to conceive? I'm asking for a friend, aka me in about six months or so and desperately wanting any and all info at my fingertips. Uh, prep stuff. So I assume that means like, what should one do before trying to get pregnant? Right. Like um, vitamins, I guess. Got maybe. it. Yeah. So, so I would say the short answer is you can tune into my podcast that we did on preconception and the preconception visit. So that'll give you like an hour of it. But if you want the short answer, basically you just want to be sure your health is optimized. So, you know, make an appointment with your doctor, your gynecologist, that so you're up to date with all your tests. 
Um, all your vaccines, for example, you many vaccines you can get in pregnancy, some you cannot. So the ones that you cannot, you can make sure you're up to date with those. Uh, generally, you want to either be taking a prenatal vitamin or any vitamin with folic acid in it, or just folic acid itself uh, before pregnancy. If you are um, a smoker, you want to try to either quit or cut back. Um, if you're a drinker, uh, again, you can drink up until you get pregnant. At that point, how much you can have is a topic of debate, but certainly if you're a heavy drinker, you shouldn't be uh, when you're pregnant. If you're if you are taking crack, you should probably cut back on that as well. Um, and I, I always, the, one of the, you know, you never know, uh, she, this person's anonymous. The um, One of the big things. Well, they're not one of the anonymous big things, to yeah. you, not to us. We know who they oh, are. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, they, they, no problem. They hey, slid yeah. into our DMs, so we yeah. know yeah, hey, say, who say they no, are. Say no to drugs. Um, that's what I grew up on. Uh, so, But the other thing that I really focus on a lot when I see women for pregnancy is pregnancy is like, and delivery is like a true marathon. It's a workout for your body. And if you can start pregnancy in as fit as possible, that is really, really helpful. So if you're someone who does not exercise, try to start pre-pregnancy. If you're someone who you feel like you have some weight to lose, try to do it before you get pregnant. Now, obviously these things don't, don't necessarily preclude you from trying to get pregnant, but your pregnancy is going to go so much smoother a, from a general health perspective, the rate of complications is lower for people who are yes. exercising and have a lower weight, but also you just feel better. I mean, you're not going to be as tired and maybe as bloated and as, you know, you know, uh, I don't know, beat up. I mean, some women are no matter what. There's just luck of the draw. Uh, but certainly your odds are improved if you walk into pregnancy in as good a shape as you can, is what I would say. Is it true that, like, the weight you start at when you're pregnant, like, you probably will not get lower than that? One, like. Like I have some moms that are like mm-hmm. trying for their second baby and they're like, I want to mm-hmm. get to a certain weight before I try to conceive my second child because mm-hmm. like my body won't uh, recognize anything lower than that after mm-hmm. the baby. I don't know if I'm explaining it right, but kind of like that optimal mm-hmm. weight. Like if you start at 130 when you get pregnant, you probably won't be right. able to get down to 120 or 125 kind of thing. You mean in pregnancy? No, after, 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 after. Oh, oh, oh. Um, I think it's just hard. I don't think it's because there's like a, I don't think it's because there's a physiologic shift okay. in your body. I think, you know, when women who get pregnant, the, the average weight gain for a singleton pregnancy in the U.S. is about, you know, 20 to 35 pounds. Some of that based on sort of what your starting weight is. Women who are much, much lighter when they start tend to gain more weight. Um, and so, okay, but after you deliver, it it's hard to take off that weight. Yeah. It just is. I mean, it's it's hard for everybody to take off weight. And so I think if women get back to their starting weight from pregnancy, they feel that's a that's an accomplishment. They feel pretty good. But to lose another five, ten pounds, it's just hard. Yeah. But I don't think it's like physiologically not possible. It's just it's just it's difficult. From a person it's also difficult to do. You have a newborn at home. It's I mean, hard. It, it's just, you know, like life. It's 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 tough. Yeah. From a personal perspective, I'm obviously like Every, every body's different. Every pregnancy is different. You gain however mm-hmm. much weight you gain and, and you know, very anti-body shaming with that. But just in terms of how mm-hmm. I feel, like I'm about yeah. like 15 to 20 pounds lighter this pregnancy than I was at the exact same state uh, stage, right. exact same number of weeks, my first pregnancy. And like the difference I feel towards the end of my pregnancy, I'm like eight months approaching nine months pregnant right now. And like, 
I feel like I can run upstairs. I just like, I'm much more mobile. I can like walk to go pick up my son. I felt so, I was so, I had to buy like triple shoes. Like I felt awful, like at the very like last month of my pregnancy last time. And, and, um, and yeah, Dr. Barber was like worried I was going to like develop preeclampsia. I was just so swollen and bloated. And so, um, and I think a lot of it has to do with this pregnancy, I was like, okay, I'm not eating for two. <laughs> you know, I started a little lighter. <laughs> it's like remembering that I'm not eating for two, listening to your podcast. I think it was, I can't remember exactly. It, you do a whole episode on exercise, but also the Emily yeah. Oster one, which is where yeah. you do talk about the sushi. It, you know, a lot of people can like scare women out of exercising in pregnancy. And I yeah. listened to your podcast and it was like, don't be scared. So I've been doing like more weights this pregnancy. I've just had more confidence to kind of like move and take care of my body and not feel like I need to be like, the lightest prenatal yoga where I'm mostly just sitting and oming, you know, with, yeah. which is like yeah. mostly it's, what I did first pregnancy. And now I, I still do the prenatal yoga, but I do it after like 20 minutes of weights. And I yeah. just like, it really does it. You feel better. You have more energy and I feel like healthier and my doctors are not so worried about me. And it, um, I, I totally agree. It, it's also one of these things that becomes counterproductive. Women, either their doctors tell them or they read somewhere or a friend or a family or tells them that they shouldn't do A, B, and C, and they they cut down on their exercise and activity, and it becomes counterproductive. The, the recommendation is actually 30 minutes, five to six times a week of moderate intensity exercise. How you define moderate is whatever, it's, but it's exercise. Like, it's real. Your heart rate is up. You're sweating. And that's what's recommended. And there's there are some exceptions, but really very few. And I I find that one of the one of the interesting things that you talked about weight gain. I rarely, for someone who's carrying one baby, care about the actual pounds they're gaining, meaning too much or too little. Because for most pregnant women, they don't have control over their weight gain. They have control over what they do. So if someone I believe is eating healthy and being active. Whatever they gain, they gain. Some bodies will put on 10 pounds. Some bodies will put on 40 pounds. And a lot of it's out of your control. A lot of it is water. A lot of it is how you metabolize things. But as long as someone, I think, is eating a healthy diet and being active in you know whatever way they can and that's healthy, then I don't focus on the number. Women ask me all the time, am I gaining too much weight or too long? I say, honestly, I didn't even look at your weight. I have no idea. You know, I'll just, I'll ask them, are you, what do you eat? How, you know, what's your diet like? What do you, what kind of nutrients, what kind of, you know, protein and this? And then I ask them, are you exercising? If the answer is fine, then God bless whatever it is, it is. Love it. All right. What else is in the mailbox for Dr. Fox? The next question is a super simple one. She just, another anonymous uh, listener, and she just wrote, is it safe getting pregnant after 40? Is it safe? <laughs> so, that's a very what that's a very I know open ended question. Yeah. But I'm just curious to get yeah, your mm-hmm. your perspective. Yeah. So uh this you're 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 basically you're 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 throwing softballs at me because again, you can listen to our hour long podcast on pregnancy in your forties. How about that? This is this was not planned. But um the short answer is yes, but it depends what you mean by safe, meaning is it safe for the mother? Um, generally, yes, if, if at 40, she's in good health, right? So a 40 year old, um, being 40 itself, isn't really such a huge issue, but if you're 40 with high blood pressure, diabetes, and you smoke and, you know, yeah, that's a different issue. Otherwise, mostly it's fine. There is a higher risk of something called preeclampsia at the end of pregnancy, but it's rarely a deal breaker in terms of like horrible health to the mother or the baby. 
there is a higher risk of a cesarean in your 40s, and it's unclear exactly why that is, but it's well known to be true. And if you get pregnant after 40, there is a higher rate, unfortunately, of miscarriage. As you get older, the rate of early miscarriage does increase, and that's really just because the likelihood that the egg that you ovulate um, is abnormal goes up as you get older, meaning when you're in your 20s, let's say, about four out of five eggs are genetically normal, So, which means about 80% of pregnancies will continue and 20% will miscarry. But when you're 40, it gets closer to 50-50. So even if you're perfectly healthy, you get your period every month, everything is fine, at 40, the rate of miscarriage from a quote-unquote bad egg is about you know close to 50%. And there's not much to do about that um, other than to be sort of aware that that is an increased possibility. And if someone miscarries, you know, they're 40, they get pregnant, they miscarry, obviously it's, it sucks and it's a horrible experience and it doesn't make it less sad, but it does not mean, oh, there's something wrong with me. I can't get pregnant. Just your odds aren't as good, um, when you're 40 than when you're 20, but certainly you can, and you know, you will, it will work out if you keep trying, um, in your forties, certainly in your early forties, as women get older and into their mid to late forties, it, it does get harder and harder to conceive. And a lot of women turn to IVF at that point and potentially even egg donors if they really get late into their 40s. Um, but that's, again, just a function of the the eggs that are remaining and the quality of them. Right. We we just did a, an episode on um, mm-hmm. on egg... Uh, freezing. Egg freezing. Thank you, Angela. Yeah. yeah. Egg freezing. Yeah. So this is, goes hand in hand. Us too. Um, <laughs> I mean, your podcast has like literally any topic. It's so we're trying. It's so we're informative. Trying. <laughs> um, we hope that was helpful. If any of you listeners want have questions that you want us to answer on future podcasts, you can email us at contact at thisiswhythepodcast.com. You can also find all of our contact info on our website at thisiswhythepodcast.com. Next, we're going to be talking about what we've been reading in the news. But first, let's thank our sponsors. We would like to thank our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp is professional counseling done securely online. Um, I've been doing all of my therapy and counseling online since the beginning of the pandemic. And honestly, I cannot imagine going back in person. Um, I'm excited to do things in person again. But for stuff like this, like this is exactly the kind of thing that is wonderful to do from home. You put on your pajamas, get comfy on your couch, and and spill your guts out to a professional. It's really nice. Um, and I've been, you know, talking with my therapist about stuff that interferes with my happiness and things that are preventing me from achieving my goals. And I mean, like, it just, it's better than talking to a friend or a family member. Like, they care about you, but they're not professionals. You want to talk to somebody who knows what they're doing. So BetterHelp is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. Like I said, it is professional counseling done securely online. You send a message to your counselor anytime. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. It's all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. You are doing this from your couch. It's great. So I want you guys to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash this is why. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, help.com slash this is why. All right, Angela, what have you been reading this week? 
So U.S. News is reporting this new study that came out about how eviction actions during pregnancy are linked to worse infant outcomes. Um, So the new study, it says uh, mothers who faced eviction actions while pregnant were more likely to be born uh, prematurely and at a low birth weight than those born to mothers who weren't pregnant while facing potential removal from their home. The study's from Princeton University, and they said it suggests policies to protect tenants from eviction might improve child health. Now, to me, this is uh, not a super surprising study because I would think any like emotional strain put on a mother during like a, a fragile time would have a negative outcome. What What did you think of this? study. Yeah, I, I looked at it. It, it. It's hard to know. I mean, clearly, I don't think it. you need a study out of Princeton telling you that it's not great to get kicked out of your home and be homeless when you're pregnant. I right? know. I, um, when I saw so, when I saw the yeah. headline, I was like, yeah, anything that would be super stressful. That would suck. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. When you're pregnant, better to have a home yeah. than not have a <laughs> home. I think, yeah. I think, yeah, I, I agree with the folks in Princeton on that one. I think, the, I think the, the study, I think the study was, was trying to link sort of places that had policies that were sort of more in favor of eviction. The women did worse or they sort of looked by zip code. And I, I think it makes sense, but I do think that, you know, looking at those studies are always very complex because it's very hard to know were the bad outcomes because there were policies in place that put women at risk for eviction, thus causing anxiety and stress and all those things? Or is it, you know, places that have eviction, you know, issues, maybe places that have women living there who are at increased risk already? You know, so it's well known that, you know, women who are at a different socioeconomic status have increased risk. It's well known, unfortunately, in this country that women of color have increased risks in pregnancy. And it's a, it's a very complex topic, obviously, you know, how much of that is sort of due to, you know, systemic racist issues, how much is due to sort of general healthcare policy and access to healthcare and use of healthcare. And it, it's a really complicated topic, but you can imagine a situation where you have a group of people who may be at increased risk at baseline who are also in an environment that has this, and it's hard to tease all that out. And um, it's it's probably more complex than that study um, gives it credit for. Yeah. Right. But I guess like the main takeaway though is like if you are a woman living in poverty, there are many factors that are putting you at a disadvantage as if you're a pregnant woman living in poverty, right? Like, yeah, I mean, it's, again, it's, it's, there's so all of these studies are, are done and come to very similar conclusions. It's, it's well known that, you know, being, you know, in a different socioeconomic status puts you at increased risk for complications. Um, certain racial minorities are at increased risk for different complications. And it's also complex, which specific, you know, minority and which specific complication. And then you have to start, you know, is it, you know, women of color, is it Hispanic women? Again, there, it, the, the data is very complicated, but again, I think it, it does make a lot of sense. And it is troubling when we see these outcomes that are so different based on where people live or based on their education level or based on their race and how to solve that is really the the greatest challenge of this century moving forward. Um, like, what is it? What do we do to fix this? And people are thinking about it, and people are trying to figure that out, but we just don't have an answer yet. And it's um, 
it's hard, but everyone knows that's, that is the greatest challenge we have uh, moving forward. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, what are you reading about, Laura? What am I reading about? Well, it's, it's kind of related actually a little bit. So I was reading NBC news. This is an article written by Jessica Zucker, who has this new book. I had a miscarriage, a memoir, a movement. And, um, she's a psychologist who had a miscarriage at four months and wrote about how it kind Mm. of affected her practice. And, um, I'm actually going to be attending her book reading this week. So I'm, um, um, yeah, like it, it was like, she's been, you know, was helping patients. And then when she experienced it herself, um, was uh kind of changed everything so um so she wrote this piece about prince harry and Meghan markle uh they re- you know they announced that they're expecting their second child on the oprah special they announced it was going to be a girl so i'm um big prince harry Me- and Meghan markle they- they've been on my mind uh with the the oprah special but um so they announced less than three months after Megan penned an op-ed in the New York Times revealing that she had suffered a miscarriage last summer, they they then announced that they were expecting their second child. And so so she wrote uh, in, this, in this piece that I read, as a psychologist specializing in reproductive and maternal mental health, I've seen firsthand how anxiety can affect those who become pregnant after having suffered loss of a pregnancy or an infant. While miscarriage is incredibly common, one in four pregnancies end in miscarriage, it can result in significant mental and emotional hardship. Uh, she also mentions a few studies. A 2020 study found that one in six people who experience miscarriage will experience long-term post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. Um, a subsequent pregnancy that results in a live birth doesn't necessarily diminish or release, uh, erase the impact of that pregnancy loss. And then uh, even a 2003 study that she she mentions in this piece found that pregnancy-related anxiety is higher among those who have experienced previous miscarriages. And I, I could definitely relate to this. I was like just my level of like emotional anxiety when I was pregnant with Rilo following my miscarriage was like just so high. Every tiny little thing. Like I had to take that glucose test for the second time and I was like bawling like on top of everything I might have, you know, <laughs> I have to take the glucose test again. And they every, you know, I was trying to do everything I could to basically, you know, calm down my anxiety and, and, and stress following my miscarriage. So I'm curious, Dr. Fox, if you, how you do patients open up to this about you? Have you seen this in your practice that, patients who have suffered a previous miscarriage are maybe a little more, uh, anxiety ridden and how you help them through that. And yeah, what's your takeaway from the the piece? Yeah. I mean, that really resonates with me and I, I literally could talk for hours and hours about this topic. Um, cause it's so important and, you know, in our practice, obviously we see a lot of women who had miscarriages, any obstetrical practice will see women who had a, miscarriages. But also, we see a lot of women who come who had second trimester losses, or they had third trimester losses, or stillbirths at term, or babies who died after birth. And so the the range of loss, you know, from an early miscarriage to all the way to, to a newborn baby, and we see all of these women. And what's, I mean, it's a real trauma to go through something like that. And it's a real loss. It's, again, every woman is going to experience it differently, just like anyone would experience the loss of a parent or a sibling or a spouse, like a death differently. But it's a trauma and it's a real grieving process. And a lot, you know, what used to happen with pregnancy and miscarriage and losses 
is these were just not spoken of. Women were, you know, it was just like, it didn't happen. Pretend like it didn't happen. Don't talk to anyone about this. And the babies, you know, they didn't have names. They weren't considered real pregnancies. And for a lot of women, that was very traumatic to them and they really couldn't get through it. For some women, maybe it was the right thing. Obviously, you know, different people grieve differently, but for many women, it was, they, they weren't really given an opportunity to properly grieve. And I think nowadays, I think we're a lot better with this. I think we do um, understand the the trauma involved with losing a pregnancy. Um, and for women, this is, they lost a child. This is changing their, what they thought their family would be like. And yeah, when, when you have another child who's healthy, all right, it, it's nice, but it doesn't take away the pain of the loss. Just, I mean, it, it's no different. Like if someone loses their wife and then they remarry, it's not like they're no longer pained by the loss of their wife. It's just your life is a little bit different. And so when we see women in those pregnancies, yeah, there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of emotions because then on top of the anxiety and the fear and the stress, there's guilt and there's uncertainty. And then they sort of feel jealous over people who didn't have this. And then they feel guilty because they feel jealous. And it's just, it's a horrible mix of emotions. And I spend a lot of time talking to women about this. I mean, I, I would say when, when I have women of history of loss, half of what I'm doing is I don't know, psychology, psychiatry, therapy. I have no idea. I mean, I'm not qualified to do any of this other than I guess I, I uh, someone they can talk to and I listen and I, I, I think just, just the awareness, what others gone through. just the awareness yeah. of what you're talking about, like makes you a great, it's, a great yeah. doctor. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it makes you a great doctor. I'm a very good listener, <laughs> but, um, it's, it's also, you know, I also warn people like other people will say things that are dumb and painful. Yes. They, I've lost friends. I've lost friendships well. over yeah. it. You know, like yeah, and they, yeah. they do. They mean well. They're trying to help you. Like, like I had one friend that I no longer speak to because I was just so hurt. She said, you know, miscarriages are so common. Like I'm, sh you know, like just get over it. Like I'm sure I'm going to have a miscarriage <laughs> and it'll be fine. And this was when I was in like the darkest state of like depression, you know. And then I had yeah. another friend yeah. who lost her baby at seven months, and I had my miscarriage at Ugh. two months. And like, and she didn't treat her pain any like let you know greater than mine like she recognized we're both in pain and you don't need to compare or uh like the pain is not some like competition of who experienced more pain like she brought me to to these you know groups and just tr you treated me with such compassion and empathy and um yeah people will say dumb shit <laughs> that's for sure yeah it's it's i think one of the messages is for people who if there was a friend or family member who experiences a loss your, your job is not to cheer them up, right? You're not, your job is to say, oh, like to try to minimize it. Oh, it, it's not so bad because, or you'll be okay because it's not helpful, right? It's, it's really just, I'm here for you. I'm so sorry this happened to you. And that's it. Like literally that's it. I'm here to hold your hand. Obviously, if you think there are things you can do for them practically, just do it. You know, just, just do something for them, bring them something, do something for them. But it's really just, I'm here for you. I'll listen, or if you don't want to speak, I'll just sit here and hold your hand. And that's very meaningful to people. They find that very comforting to have someone just to sit with them. I think that's great advice for anybody grieving anything in life. Anything, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's right. It's it's any for you. Uh, treat, you should treat a miscarriage, if someone has a miscarriage or pregnancy loss, really in the same principles if they were, you know, 
grieving a, a death of a of a parent. Yeah. You know, there isn't you, you don't cheer people up, you know, when their parent dies. They're like, oh hey, you know, but you know, it was wonderful that, you know, he lived to 70. Like, I'm I'm grieving. Yeah. Like it's not the right and, time. It just doesn't and help. And also, like, just because something's common, does it make it any less painful? That's one thing that I found like so shocking when my friend said, Oh, it's, it happens all the time. Yeah, well, like a hundred percent of people will have their parents die. You know, it, it's like, <laughs> right. does that make it not painful? Yeah. You know. So, anyways, thank yeah. you for thank you for totally thank right. you for saying that. Um, all right. On that note, we are going to jump into our final segment. It is time for our topic of the week. So this week's topic is everything you wanted to ask an OB about pregnancy. We're asking all the questions. We've covered a lot so far. Um, yeah. But uh, Laura, we what, have a what few, do you want to ask? Well, we have a few more. I mean, I guess I wanted to to talk about a few things that kind of st- that stuck with me from listening to your to your show. Your episode on ultrasounds really stuck with me because I once had a homeopath tell me that doing ultrasounds was, quote, an excuse to abort the baby and would I want to abort abort oh. my baby? And I was, like, caught so off guard. And she was like, leave the baby alone. You know, don't be heating up the baby. And, like, you know, you're Whoa. just looking for an excuse wow. to abort the baby. Yeah, I never saw that. I wow. know, never saw that homeopath again. And and I'm very, like... Wow, as Ron Burgundy said, wow, that escalated. Yeah. Yeah. And, I'm, and I'm very, and I'm very, like... I love my Eastern and Western modalities and like saw a lot of woo-woos and, um, and like, you know, <laughs> go to acupuncture and cranial psychotherapy. I've been an imaging specialist. I, I do it all, but that, that caught me off guard. And then, um, and I knew it was wrong, but then listening to your episode explain why I found so incredibly helpful because we do these anatomy at ultrasounds sometimes too, I think what, 16 weeks and 20 weeks, um, because you can see certain yeah. things on the heart at 20 weeks that you can't before. And it's not an excuse to quote unquote abort the baby. It's that you can actually sometimes do interventions. Sometimes while the baby is still in the womb, they've been able to do surgery from what I, I've, I've learned. And then also just maybe you find out that the baby might need help when you do deliver having a team there ready. Um, is that Would that be like an accurate explanation of one of the ma- reasons you might do the ultrasound and that it's not, quote, an excuse to abort the baby like this yeah. uh, homeopath <laughs> uh, told me? I, I, I wanted to like email yeah. her after listening to your episode and like just like send her a link to your podcast and be like, can you just listen to this episode because you are giving very bad information. <laughs> Right. And, and like you, I'm the, I'm the fan of the home. I am the fan of the homeopaths. I am, I'm on board with alternative care and medicine. You've had a lot of them on your show. It's all good. You've had a lot. God, yeah, it's, it's wonderful stuff. I think that was just a, a a bad statement. You know, we do, you know, pregnancy, obviously we spend a lot of time focusing on the health of the mother, but then we do also spend a lot of time focusing on the baby. And some of that is information, meaning, you know, we do various tests to determine is the baby genetically quote unquote normal um, and anatomically normal. Um, And we do that, you know, like a mentor of mine said, it's not a search and destroy mission. Like we're not there for that reason. Now, yes, there are definitely women who, when they find out their baby has a certain either genetic abnormality or anatomic abnormality, they make the choice to end the pregnancy. Um, And that's their decision. I mean, people end pregnancies without any Thing, you know, quote unquote, wrong with the baby. And, and, you know, and in this country, it's still, you know, a woman's right to do so. And that's fine. But when we're doing it, that's not the reason we do these tests. The reason we do them is for most 
people, let's say 97, 98%, we give them reassuring information that says your baby appears healthy. The genetics are normal. The anatomy looks normal. You have less to worry about, less less to be anxious about over the course of pregnancy, because that's what most people are worried about when they're pregnant. And so it lowers anxiety for most people. For the 3% of the time, let's say that there is something with the baby, uh, again, 3% doesn't mean it's all 3% bad. These could be 3% things that are really very small things that either need to be corrected or don't need to be corrected after birth. But even if there's something that's a little bit bigger, like you said, it's about expectations. So if a a couple knows they're going to have a baby that has a congenital heart defect, it's way different to find out about it at 20 weeks pregnant or 16 weeks pregnant than after birth. I mean, so if you know about it at 16 or 20 weeks, you'll have already met with a pediatric cardiologist. You'll have a relationship with one. You'll possibly met with a pediatric cardiothoracic surgeon if the baby needs surgery. You'll have an expectation of when I deliver, I'm going to deliver at this hospital. They're going to do this test. We're going to make a decision about surgery. At what point will the surgery be? What's the prognosis going to be? All of these things are known. Whereas if you find out the day you deliver the day after, that's a pretty horrible time to try to sort all that out. You just had a baby. You're exhausted. You're recovering. You're, you're a wreck. I mean, you've got to try to take care of a newborn and go through all this and do all these tests. And it's just a different experience. And so the same is true. Some women find out their baby has a, let's say, Down syndrome. And, you know, I would say probably the majority, at least half of our patients would not terminate a pregnancy for Down syndrome. Some would, but many, if not most, wouldn't. But then they know. Do I have to, if I'm going to buy a house, do I have to make sure what's what's the schooling system like? What services do they have for kids with special needs? Or do I need, you know, to if I'm going to take the second job or not take the second job? And this is information people want to know. And it, it, it's just important. And then there's all other things about managing just when should you deliver? How should you deliver about the health of the baby? So yeah, we, we don't do these tests, you know, to find the bad baby. We're doing this to help women with their expectations for their family and to make plans and to plan the delivery and afterwards. I, from a personal experience, I can, uh, I have very close friends who found out that their baby was going to be born with club feet and they were able to mm-hmm. make plans to find, like you said, a specialist, line it up. Uh, it was not in New York city. So they, you know, were able to like rent out an Airbnb and, like near where the hospital was and the doc, the specialist doctor that they wanted to see was, and they were just able to like set their, their, the plans up of what the next like year was going to be like correcting the correct, correcting the, the feet so that the, the baby would get right. the best start in life. And so, yeah, I found that up explanation, like just yeah. extremely helpful and like important. And I think it's also important for people to realize that when you're pregnant and you get some sort of diagnosis or suspicion, if you don't think that the the place you went to is, they know exactly what they're doing, get a second opinion, go somewhere else, find an expert. It's an ultrasound. It's safe for you. It's safe for the baby. Because we see a lot of people with second opinions and frequently we agree 100%. We say, yeah, we agree with the findings. We agree with their counseling. We agree with everything. And then she feels at least reassured that this is correct information. But frequently someone comes and they'll say, my baby has this and my doctor told me to have an abortion. And I'll scan them. I'll say, well, well, I'll say, well, no, like here's what I see and here's what I think. And then it changes it entirely. And and that absolutely happens, unfortunately, either because the people doing the ultrasound weren't as skilled or potentially they just 
their counseling was off, meaning they they threw in their own judgments and values yeah, into that, the counseling. That's, that's what which, that which happens was. a lot. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the woe the woe is not like you know it's uh, <laughs> women's right to choose, but but like yeah, nobody should tell you or or kind of push you in one direction. Is that yeah? I, would, that was I think that's definitely a good sign. You should get a second opinion just because it's a real that's that's extreme. It's so. personal. Yeah, it, yeah. It's it personal. happens. It happens a lot more than you would like to think, unfortunately. Or they're made even if they're not told that directly, they're told a prognosis that is incorrectly or it focuses too much on the the likelihood of something bad meaning if the chance of something bad happening is five percent and you don't tell them this is five percent and you say your baby could have this this and this they think it's a hundred percent right so yeah it's this this requires very precise and accurate counseling and sometimes either it's not said or sometimes people just you know you don't always take in everything that's said so get a second opinion so the theme this week is everything that you would want to ask um, an OB. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you feel like you get asked about a lot? Um, I mean, I get asked about everything. I think right now everyone's asking about COVID and what to yeah. do. That's a huge thing. Um, and I think that obviously every week, every month, we learn more and more. I think the the overwhelming message from COVID is we've been actually pleasantly surprised Surprised that for the major, for the most part, women who are pregnant and get COVID don't really do that much worse than women who are not pregnant and get COVID. Again, similarly aged and health, they do they definitely do worse when they're pregnant, um, but not as much worse as we would have predicted. Right, women who get the flu when they're pregnant do way worse than women who are not pregnant. And we thought it would be the same for COVID. We thought it would be a disaster. And it wasn't. Most women who get who are pregnant, again, they're typically young and healthy, and that's the group that tends to do well with COVID. It was basically the same for pregnancy. So I think that that's, that was an important lesson that even though it's, it is slightly higher risk, not as bad. And fortunately, all the data thus far on the vaccines in pregnant women has been reassuring. They did not test pregnant women specifically, which is unfortunate. Uh, and because of that a lot of pregnant women are afraid to take the vaccine, but I took many it. are. Yeah, yeah. I encourage I encourage uh, my pregnant patients uh, to take the vaccine unless they feel like they shouldn't for some other reason. But it again, it's I'd rather someone get the vaccine than get COVID. Essentially, how yeah. how it is for pregnancy, and thus far the preliminary data, at least on the vaccine and pregnancy, has all been reassuring. We will wait till more and more data comes out, but it's been good so far. So so that's good. That's great. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was so informative and so helpful. Um, guys. This is great. Yeah. And I roped you in. You're coming on mine. I am. I sure am. <laughs> a I will crossover. We'll, we'll promote it on our social feeds so you can you can listen to both. Um Love it. That that one will be all about my my half uterus. <laughs> we'll get <laughs> all, No, no, you're magical. My you're magical, magical uterus. My magical uterus. My magical The unicorn. It is magical now because I I carried my son. He was he's my little miracle mm-hmm. baby. Um mm-hmm. guys, that is it for this week's This Is Why Podcast. Thank you so much to our guest, Dr. Fox. Check out the Healthful Woman Podcast and High Risk Birth Stories Podcast. You can find all of his info and info about the podcast at healthfulwomen.com. Woman, that's M-A-N. Uh any other plugs we should tell people about? No, I think it's uh thank you so much. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, you can my podcast like you said, it's Healthful Woman uh in the singular. Uh we have a website. 
and high-risk birth stories. We're on Apple, we're on Spotify, wherever you get podcasts, I think we're there. And uh, and yeah, and we'd love to tune in and we do take suggestions if people have topics they want us to cover um, or if someone wants to um, volunteer to tell their own high-risk birth, birth story, absolutely positively. We have a, a link and an email people can send to and uh, and yeah, we'd love to hear it. Um, I, I volunteered my story, so that's how mm-hmm. we, we got roped in. Um, che- I didn't really get roped in. I volunteered. Um, <laughs> check out a plug for ourselves. Check out our book. This is why you're single and my new book, Cinderella and the glass ceiling and other feminist fairy tales. They're available at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, but we encourage you to support your local indie bookstores and try to get them from there. They'll usually order it if they don't have it in stock. Yes, and you get hooked up with discounts from all of our sponsors for a full list of sponsors and the codes. Check out our podcast page on thisiswhythepodcast.com. We are also on social, so you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at thisiswhythepod. You can always submit questions there for us, and please like and subscribe on iTunes. And thank you for listening. Tune in next week for a whole new show. Bye. Bye. This is why, this is why Pop culture, politics, friendship, dating, work, parenting, news This is why The podcast That was a HeadGum podcast